Amen. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, choir also. Fantastic leading into the Lord's Word today. The Lord's uh, been teaching me over these last couple of months some things I want to communicate to you. I had been planning from all the way back in the summer of last year to kind of get to a place this year where we are and spend a few weeks unfolding to you where I believe we as a church should be, what we should be, what we should be about, what we should be doing. And so over the next few weeks, I want to summarize that with sort of three overarching themes. And then following that, coming behind those three overarching themes, looking at how those three themes work together in the life of the church to identify who the church is and what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. And so I want to take this time to lay out sort of the the first thing and you have a little outline there and we have a picture up here and and that's to know God. If there is one single thing that should drive everything we do and everything we say, our thoughts and our intents of our heart for ourselves and for others, it should be that we know God and that we should be interested in others knowing God. And what I want to do today is take the story that Andrew read and then lay it beside another story in the book of Acts. So if you'll go ahead and go to Acts 17 and then talk with you about how God reveals himself in these two stories and the importance of how he reveals himself and what it means to us as a church at the individual level and then at the small group and Sunday school and discipleship level, and then at the corporate level as a whole. And so what I want to do is let you reflect for a moment on the story that Andrew read, the story of the woman at the well. Kind of ponder that for a moment and some of the things that Jesus said to her and some of the things that she said to him. Then from there, I want you to look at the story that I'm about to read and notice that there are some similarities that are very important. If you're in my small group or you came last Wednesday night or you're a staff member, you've already heard this. And so you Wednesday night folks kind of got a preview of where we're going tonight, So uh, this morning. So here we go, Acts chapter 17. Let's pick up in... Let me just give you the background. Paul is visiting the city of Athens, which is sort of the religious center of the universe at that time. Just everything religious was there. It was the center of the places where people had set up all of their different shrines to all of the different gods 
and goddesses that they knew of. And there were literally thousands of shrines there of different kinds, some little home shrines that people had in some lofty shrines in the center of town and a lot of things in between. And basically, the Athenians wanted to be the center where all the gods and the goddesses were worshipped and where they would gather for that purpose and interchange ideas. So this town was saturated with religious culture. It was the normal talk to talk of the different ideologies and philosophies, the different religions and the different kinds of worship. And so when Paul comes to town, he has a little time on his hands and he says, I'm going to do a tour. And so he starts to tour the town and he goes to the city center where all the religious shrines are and he's walking through all of those shrines and he's noticing that this may be the most religious place that he's ever been. And so he starts contemplating that. And the Bible says he was provoked by the city being literally filled with idols. So here's Paul walking around, city tour, heart provoked, meets up with some guys, starts having an interaction, which was what Paul did, and begins to share with them about Christ and about the gospel and about the one true God. And they said, listen, we think everybody in town probably like to hear your story. You have a new story for us. So why don't we all gather together? And so you see that coming to pass in verse 19. Let's pick up in 18 of chapter 17. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with Paul. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. There's a little parenthesis there that says, Now all the Athenians and their strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So they loved assimilating other cultures and other cultural information, other religions, other religious information. So it was just like a great big gathering where they just talked about whatever's new. And so they had a special place set up for the whatever's new talk. And so they bring Paul into the Areopagus, and the story picks up in verse 22. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in every respect. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription. So think about Paul. He's right there in Athens. He's going altar to altar, shrine to shrine, idol to idol, and he's kind of checking them out. And he reads, this one's this one, and this one's this one, and this one's this one, and... Back in the day, they thought that gods and goddesses were dependent on human support, human belief, human interaction, human worship, human offerings. 
They thought that they were dependent upon them to be raised in their godness. So if a God was really important to you, you tried to bring worship to that one God. And so you built a really good shrine. And the fancier the shrine, it seemed to be the more popular the God was. And maybe it elevates Him. And so they had the sense that gods have needs. They're needy beings. And if you read all of the Greek mythology and then the Roman mythology following that, you'll read how needy these gods were for power and recognition and all of these things. And so they have this idea that gods were needy. So Paul is walking around and he sees all these shrines and he walks up to this one shrine and it, and it says, to the unknown God. And Paul, being the minister and preacher and pastor as he is, he says, that's a pretty good sermon illustration right there. I think I'll use that next time I preach. And so he looks at that and he sees it and says, because that's the one they don't know about. All of the way that they see God is so messed up. So, that's how he does his sermon. So right there, what I said, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one person every nation of mankind to live on the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is something like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God has now declared to everyone that all men should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, having read your word, I pray that you would grant us the gift of knowing you. By your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word, speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul is recounting a, an event that happened in the life of his ministry and Luke has written it out for us to keep so that we would be able to reflect on it. John did the same thing, recorded a story in the life of Jesus. But these two stories are about the same thing. You see, the story 
in John 4 and the story in Luke 17 have one theme. And that theme is that we should know God. When Jesus interacts with the woman at the well, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who you were talking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. As the conversation unfolds between Jesus and the woman, he finally says to her, you worship what you do not know. When Paul gets into the Oropagus and he's surrounded by these people, and he brings up this issue of a shrine to an unknown God, you see the people were so busy about wanting to cover all the gods and goddesses, they figure, well, maybe we left one out. Let's build a shrine to the one we left out. We'll just call him the unknown God. Maybe there's just somebody out there we don't know about. And the Apostle Paul says, what you worship in ignorance or unknowingly, I proclaim to you. In both of these texts, there is a central problem. The woman at the well and the people at the Oropagus did not know God. They thought they did. They thought they had some grasp on Him about what He is like, how He interacts, what His nature is. The Athenians thought themselves specialists in gods and goddesses. Having shrines for all of them and welcoming everyone of all faiths to come and worship in their town and to express themselves because they really thought they understood the nature of God, gods and goddesses. The woman at the well thought she understood. But in both instances, Jesus and Paul, you have a person who walks in and says, here's your greatest need. Your greatest need is to know God. Your greatest need is to know Him. Now think about how much time Jesus gets on earth. Okay, you have an eternal being who's always been and always will be, clothes himself in flesh and blood, born of a virgin, lives the first 30 years of his life in kind of obscurity. We have a couple of stories when he's young, around the birth around the the time of him going to the temple, around the time of fleeing to Egypt. You have those stories, very young, maybe up to two or three years old. Then you have a little shot, one time around the time he's 12. And then you don't hear from him again until he's about 30 years old. And he comes out and begins his ministry. And he's got how many years on, on earth in ministry? How many years? He's got three years. Now, I don't know if you think about how fast... Three years is, or how quickly it passes, but three years passes very quickly. And so he's got this limited amount of time, and he's wanting to be about one thing. He's wanting to make clear what God is like. So he goes directly into the hated city. He goes to the hated people, the people that are divided from God, divided from the Jews walks right into the middle of town, and he decides to spend his time 
with an obscure, sinful woman because he wants her to know God. Obviously, it is very important to God that people know Him. It is very important, and it's not done at a personal level. So here you have Jesus not just going to spend this one day. How many days does He spend in Samaria? You remember? Total of three days. So three days of the three years he gets spent in an obscure little town with a hated group of people because he just wants to accomplish one thing with them. He wants them to know him. This is very important. The Apostle Paul, in his ministry, Athens opportunity to preach, stands there and makes clear that the problem they have is they don't know God. And so he gives a brief but outstanding Holy Spirit-inspired message about what God's really like because they were confused. And their great need was to know God. What I want to say to you is that this is the greatest need of every human being. And everything in the Bible backs it up. To know God is the greatest need of all humanity. That's it. Now let me break it down. Uh, My outline's kind of silly. But I'm going to say it anyway. Number one... God really wants us to know Him. <laughs> I hate the word really because we use it, really, we use it way too much, really. You know what I'm talking about? But it belongs here. God really wants us to know Him. Now, He wants us to know Him in these ways. Let me just walk through them. First, He wants us to know Him accurately. The Bible says that since the creation of the world, Romans 1, 18, 19, 20, since the creation of the world, His invisible nature, divine attributes, and eternal power have been clearly seen through what has been made. I'm going to get back to that in a second. God wants us to know Him accurately. When Moses was given the commands on building the temple, he had to be exactly accurate in everything because it spoke of God. When the commands were given and the prophecies were laid out and the New Testament was recorded, it was to be done accurately because it spoke of God. And so God wants to be known and wants us to know Him accurately. Second, He wants us to know Him personally. It's not... It's not deism, kind of God out there, nebulous and far from us. He wants us to know Him, that He wants a relationship with you personally. He wants you to know Him so that you could have this this interaction where you call Him Dad. That's very, very personal. And so what God is after is that that He be known accurately, that He be known personally, that He be known savingly. 
that really to know Him rightly is to ask Him to deliver us. To save us. To redeem us. To rescue us. To forgive us. All of those things that come with the salvation experience. God wants you to know Him savingly. God wants you to know Him intimately. We sing of that kind of intimacy in some of our hymns. In, in the, the hymn, In the Garden. I come to the garden alone when the dew is still fresh on the ground. And it talks about this, He walks with me and He talks with me and He tells me I'm His own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, no one has ever known. He wants us to know Him intimately. He presents Jesus to us as a groom in the church, us as a bride. There's an intimacy there. Father, child, husband, wife, the most intimate relationships in the Bible. He wants us to know Him intimately, accurately, personally, savingly, intimately, eternally. When Jesus defines eternal life, the one definition He drops is John 17.3. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's eternal life. It is to know God. Now, He gives us means by which we know Him. Let's unfold those real quick. First, the creation. I want you to ponder the creation for a second and get what the Scripture says about the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament is His handiwork. When you look at the vastness, the glory, the beauty of creation, God didn't create the world because He needed it. The Apostle Paul makes crystal clear, He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you. He didn't create you out of need. He didn't create the world out of need. God has no need. In the Trinity, for all of eternity, there is a perfectly sufficient, self-sufficient, eternal glorious, happy relationship that is not needy at all. So when God unfolded in these beautiful six days of creation, when He unfolded the glories of the heavens, the beauties of earth, the intricacies of biology and science, when He unfolded all of these things, it was not for Him. It was for you. He did all of this to speak to you and to say to you, this is what I'm like. I am so vast that you cannot comprehend me. I am so intricate that you cannot unfold me. I am so ordered that you cannot fully comprehend me. There is all of this built into the glory of creation so that God did not build it out of need, but He built it and He set in the middle of this glorious creation two image bearers. 
so that they could behold the one in whose image they were made, in the glory of the creation he set them in. That's why in Romans 1 it says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen so that human beings have no excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God. To whom? To you. God speaks through the creation directly to you so that you can know Him. But He didn't leave us just with an external witness. The internal witness is our conscience. That's why in Romans 1 it says that God not only made it evident to them, He made it evident within them. And in Romans chapter 2 He picks up the idea that the conscience was a gift given by God that reminds us either accusing us or defending us, that there is someone in whose image we are made and there are some things that are beyond our own autonomy and we are corrected in our conscience. Now, our consciences can be seared, they can be warped, they can be twisted, but they are a gift where God evidences Himself to us. That's why even... When, when you watch the movie The End of the Spear and you hear the backstory on it, with all the murdering and all the killing, there's this one interaction where one of the most, most vicious men said, I always knew it was wrong when we murdered each other. Always knew. They grew up with nothing but murder. They practiced nothing but murder. And then suddenly, in this candid moment, he says... I always knew. The BBC recently did a documentary on Chicago. If you haven't been following the the brokenness of Chicago and the murder rate and the horridness of it, but the BBC did a, a, a documentary on it where they planted a guy sort of underground. They let he let it be known he was a reporter, but he came in without any authorities, without any police, without anybody knowing. He just did the filming and he got right in the middle of all the stuff that was going on between the neighborhoods and everybody was showing their guns and their toughness and there were murders almost every day in these neighborhoods and it was horrid and they're plotting all of this and you're following along and this one man is the middle of the story the whole time. And man, he is tough. He is scary, scary tough. And as you're watching the video for the first several minutes of the video and the language is rough and the situation's rough and you're watching it and you're going, man, I don't want to run into this guy. I just, I'm scared. I'm, the, the idea of landing in Chicago right now scared me to death because I might just meet this one guy. And everybody's about the guns and the murder and the killing and all this is going on. And then you get him in just a moment by the river and he's sitting there. And he's telling all of the toughness and all of the stuff, and all of a sudden, he breaks. And this hardened man, murdering community, nothing but violence and hardship around him, he breaks, and his conscience lays bare for just a moment. And he starts waving the cameraman, cut, 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 cut. The cameraman doesn't cut. 
And he breaks down and he begins to weep because his conscience is broken. And he says, man, we got, we got to have a way out of here. There's nobody to lead us. There's nobody to help us. We've got no hope. And he's just weeping openly because in the middle of all the touching brokenness, there is the touching conscience where this man is sorrowed over his own sin and the sin of his community. God has not left us without an internal witness of who He is. He goes further and tells us that He wants us to know Him through the Bible. All that He's done to preserve the Bible. All that He's done to keep it. All that He's done to make sure you're holding it in your hand so that an accurate picture of Him is in front of you. God has shown Himself through the means of the Bible, through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No man has beheld God at any time, but the only begotten God in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him to us. Jesus came. Now listen, everybody thought they knew what God was like. The Samaritans thought they knew what God was like. The Jews thought they knew what God was like. The Gentiles thought they knew what God was like. And then God shows up and He blows up everybody's idea of God. And we find God at a table, looking at a prostitute, eating with a tax collector, relating to a sinner. And He's nothing like we thought He was. He's tender. He cries. He weeps. He serves. And all of a sudden, God explodes the way the Samaritans see God. God explodes the way Jews see God. God explodes the way that Gentiles see God. Because we were all trying to see God in some way in which we were crafting Him in our own image. The Pharisees thought He was a self-righteous kind of God. The Gentiles thought He was a pagan kind of needy creature that needed someone to prop Him up. The Samaritans thought He was a God whose word could be manipulated to their own liking. That's why they wrote their own Samaritan Pentateuch and tweaked a few things to their advantage. God walks right into the middle of all of these situations. He says to the Pharisees, You are ignorant knowing not the word of God nor His intent. Go and read this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. To the Samaritan woman, he bluntly said, You worship what you do not know. To the Gentiles, he said, What you worship in ignorance. I believe that if the church is to face the future the way that it should, and if we as a local body of believers are going to approach what God has called us to, we're going to have to have a renewed knowledge of God. And my number one takeaway from my entire time that the Life Action team was here, and I had tons of takeaways, but my number one was one statement that Greg said at the beginning that 
helped with all that I was already studying and thinking on to bring to you. And that was this. He said, your understanding of the holiness of God is the most instrumental thing in every lifestyle decision you make. And I believe based on the kind of lifestyle decisions that we're making as a church, and that we're making as churches, and that we're making as a nation who's influenced by the churches in some ways, I believe that we're missing some things about His holiness. And a kind of intimate knowledge of Him that would shape us into His image that we may show Him to everybody else. And so, God has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. He's clarified. Jesus told us challenging things like, when you throw a party, go out and find the sick and the lame and bring them in. Do something for people who can do nothing for you. He told us things like, if you do not give up all of your possessions, you cannot be my disciple. He told us that the greatest thing was to love the Lord our God, and the second greatest thing was to love our neighbor as ourself. And we wanted Him to define our neighbor for us, so we went and found the most hated person in town and said, there's your neighbor. So Jesus kind of blew up everybody's understanding. There's one more place that God wants to make Himself known, and that is the church. We are the place where re-imaging is taking place. We were created in the image of God, but we were recreated to be made into His likeness after the fall when the image was marred and we became very blurred in what we were representing as humanity as the Bible shows us. But we are the place where re-imaging is taking place. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Being made in the image of Christ. And so... This is it. If there is one thing that we must pursue, it is to know God accurately, personally, savingly, intimately, eternally. For that is why you were made. You were made. To know Him. That's why you exist. And once you come to know Him, you are left on earth so that through you, others may come to know Him. So let me finish the last two points quickly and then give us some homework. Second point, we really need to know God. God really wants us to know Him. We really need to know God. That's your need today. That's my need today. What is your greatest need today? I need to know God. I need to know what He is like. I need to know it accurately. I need to know it personally that it's between Him and me that He loves me. 
I need to know it savingly that I'm delivered from my sin and the domain of darkness and am brought into His family so that I can know Him intimately in order that I may know Him eternally. God has laid before my eyes the creation. He has laid inside my being, my conscience. He has given into my possession His Word, the Bible. He has given to us as a gift to explain Himself and save us, Christ. And now we as the church have the task of making Him known in the world. So what is my greatest need today? It is to know God. That's my need today. But it's everybody else's need too. It's what my neighbor needs. It's what the guy who's going to cut, cut you off in traffic in a few minutes, he needs to know God. The person who's going to deceive you or abuse you or hurt you this week, their greatest need is to know God. Your boss who's mistreating you, your employee who's misusing you, they need to know God. Your spouse who's unfaithful to you, they need to know God. Your children who are disappointing you need to know God. This is what He is about. And this is what we're about. So finally, others really need to know God. If this is the thing for which I was made, and if through the creation, if through my conscience, if through the Bible, if through Christ, He's been made known to me, then we the church make Him known to the world. That's our job. We make Him known. So I want to ask you, Look at the back of your outline. And I want to quiz you for a moment and then invite you to some decisions. The question at the top of the back is, what is standing in my way of knowing God? I broke that into three things. One, things that presently inhibit me from increasing in the true knowledge of God. Two, things that potentially may inhibit me from increasing in the true knowledge of God. And three, Things that presently help me grow in the true knowledge of God. There are internal things right now in every one of us that are hindering our knowledge of God. Pride, fantasy, desire, bitterness, malice, wrath, dissatisfaction, anger, disappointment. There are some internal things in us today that have us stopped. We think we know God and we think we're good and we're just hung. And something has happened inside us and we just come up and we stop. We don't go any further in knowing Him. The intimacy is cold. The desire to fellowship is absent. And you're just stuck. There are outside things, external. Addiction to media. Binge watching. Sports. Busyness. Money. All kinds of things that you know, sitting here today, sap your time that you should be knowing God. That you should be fellowshipping with your Creator. You should be intimately interacting with Him. You should be praying and hearing. You should be reading and rejoicing. You should be dining and satisfied on the nature of who He is. But you have so many things. I have so many things. They're in the way. And then there's some relational things. There's somebody you're not forgiving. 
there's somebody you're idolizing and they're in the way. And you know it. You're stuck. There's some potential things that are on the horizon for you. A career, a job, a change, some temptation. It's right over the horizon. Or something that you already have and you're just not sure if you're using it right. And it's on the bubble right now. Whether it will help you know God or it will hinder you. And then there are things that presently help you. You have some accountability groups, some friends. You have a Bible. You have a church that loves you and loves the Lord. You have so many things that presently can help you grow in the true knowledge of God. I'm going to ask if you would bow with me. I want you to think with me for just a moment about two statements in the two stories we heard today. One statement was to the Samaritan woman. And that statement was, you worship what you don't know. Why did he say that? Well, first, because it was true. But second, because of what he said earlier. He said to her, listen to these words. If you knew. If you knew. The gift of God. And who it is. That you're speaking with. You would have asked. And He would have given. In other words, you may be exactly where that woman was in your walk right now. Because you think God needs something from you. He doesn't. God doesn't need anything. The needy one? That's you. And if you knew who you were talking to when you pray, you would ask. If you knew that the gift He wants to give is the gift of Himself, you would ask. If you knew that the gift was a relationship, an adoption, a forgiveness, an intimacy, a fulfilling, a satisfying, you would ask. So maybe we're like the Samaritan woman today. And maybe in some ways, we worship what we do not know. And wouldn't it be sweet right now if your prayer was this? God, I want to know You. I want to know You the way You describe Yourself as bread for hungry people. I want to know you the way you say that you're water for the thirsty. I want to know you the way you say that you're light for people who are in darkness. I want to know you the way that you say that you are resurrection for the dead.
I want to know you the way that you say you're shepherd for lost people. Lost sheep. Maybe that would be our prayer today. And we would go out here and the greatest pursuit in our life would be this one simple thing. God, I want to know you accurately, personally, savingly, intimately, eternally. Yes. I want to know you. But you know if you pray that prayer, something's coming. Because there are many things in your life right now, if you would be honest, they stand in the way of you knowing God. They're somehow idols in your life. And they're completely got you stuck where you are in knowing God. And now your knowledge of God, just like the Pharisees, has simply turned into intellect. And it is no longer love. It's moved to information rather than relationship. You know Him at a distance. As Johnny Hunt says, and you walk at a guilty distance from Him. Because some of those things that are preventing, you're not willing to get rid of. Others of you, You're here today and you've never entered that first step relationship through saving faith with Jesus. And I'm I'm inviting you today to that. He wants you to know Him savingly. He loves you. He really loves you. He makes it so clear in all of the Bible, but particularly in Jesus. If you would turn from your sin and trust that Jesus died for your sins and was raised from the dead, you would be saved. I invite you. My prayer this morning for you is that you would join me in this one thing. That we would enter a quest today that Kingsville Baptist Church would be known as the church that knows God. Would you stand? As God stirs your heart, would you come?